Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and we are gonna be ending the year with an absolutely incredible and very special show. Today we have one of my personal heroes and role models coming on the show. Her name is Liz Ann Saunders. She is the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab and is one of the best analysts and economists in the entire world. And I promise you, you all are going to learn a ton from our very interesting conversation. Liz Ann and her team at Charles Schwab recently released a report called U.S. Outlook, One Thing Leads to Another. It just came out in the last couple of weeks and presents information and their basic outline for what they think is going to happen in the economy next year. And during our conversation today, we are going to talk about the report. We get in all sorts of topics like the concept of a recession or a soft landing and where Liz Ann thinks we fall on that spectrum. We also talk about mortgage rates and bond yields, consumer spending and sentiment. And of course, we are going to talk about the Fed and what they've been up to. But I think in addition to just Liz Ann's opinions about these things, there's a lot to learn in this episode because Liz Ann does a great job explaining what data you should pay attention to and why, and which data is just kind of noise that isn't as important for investors like us when we're making our decisions about our portfolio. So while you're listening to this, in addition to what she says, also pay attention to the things she's talking about, why she looks at certain indicators, why. She ignores other indicators because it can really help you sort through all the noise out there and just focus on the things that are going to help you build your portfolio in 2024. With that, let's bring on Lizanne Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lizanne Saunders, welcome back to On The Market. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy holidays. Thank you. You too. For those of our audience who didn't catch your first appearance on this show, can you please just briefly introduce yourself and what you do at Charles Schwab? Sure. So Lizanne Saunders, I am the uh, Chief Investment Strategist at Schwab, a role I have had. I've been at Schwab since 2000. Um, so long time. And before that, I was at a firm called Zweig Avatar. During our last episode, we ended on something that I'd love to just pick up on, which was your concept of a rolling recession. Can you tell us a little bit about what a rolling recession is in your mind? Sure. So there's no precise definition. It's just a, a term that we've chosen to to use to describe what is obviously a very unique cycle. And I, I'm not going to go back three and a half years and, and run through a litany of things that makes it unique. But I think it is important to go back to the, the stimulus era during the early part of the pandemic, because at the, at the time that stimulus kicked in, both on the monetary side and the fiscal side, and it, it boosted the economy dramatically very quickly and took the economy out of what was although painful, a very short-lived pandemic recession, that stimulus and the demand associated with it was all funneled into the goods side of the economy because services weren't accessible. And that's also uh, where the inflation problem began on the goods side of various inflation metrics. But since then, we've not only seen hyperinflation go to disinflation to deflation in many categories on the goods side, we actually have had recessions um, in a rolling sense in manufacturing, housing, housing-related, a lot of consumer-oriented products and goods that were big beneficiaries of the, of the stay-at-home phase. And we've had more recent offsetting strength on the services side. That's often that's also where you saw the more recent pickup in inflation on the services side. Inherently, those metrics are a little bit uh, stickier. So when we think about the recession versus soft landing debate, I think that's a little too simplistic because we've already had hard landings in some of those areas. To me, best case scenario is a continued roll through, whereby you know if and when services needs to take a breather, that you've got offsetting stability and or maybe even recovery in areas that have already had their hard landing. So that's, in essence, what we're talking about. So just to make sure I understand and to explain everyone, uh, traditionally, a recession, at least as it's defined by the National Bureau of Economic Research, states that there needs to be significant declines in economic activity through a broad portion of the economy. And as Liz Ann is explaining here, the, what's going on now is more like a whack-a-mole situation, if you will, where one section of the economy might start to see a decline. As Lizanne said, that was mostly in the goods area. And then services, a different sector of the economy, might be strong and might in the future start to decline. So that's why it's rolling through the economy one industry at a time. And Lizanne, you mentioned that some industries have had hard landings. Are there any that come to mind that are have been particularly painful? 
Well, I, you know, housing, depending on what metric you're you're looking at, you you didn't see epic level declines in prices, at least not in existing homes. And I think that just has to do with the supply-demand imbalance, the fact that even though mortgage rates accelerated quite dramatically over the last year or so, for the existing home market, so many uh, homeowners are locked in at much lower mortgage rates, and therefore they're locked into their homes. But we did see pretty epic declines, uh, akin to the bursting of the housing bubble type declines in uh, sales. Now, we started to see a bit of recovery there, but that's one area that saw compression. You, you certainly saw it in manufacturing broadly in certain components of manufacturing. And by the way, the weakness in, in manufacturing without the attendant uh, weakness, we've had a little bit of weakness in services, but nowhere near the extreme, helps to explain why an index like the LEI, the leading economic index, which has 10 subcomponents, has been flashing recession. Now that index is more manufacturing bias, not because the conference board that created the index is missing something. They know that services is a larger portion of the US economy, but manufacturing does tend to lead. And that's why there's more of a manufacturing bias in the leading indicators. But that helps to explain a disconnect too, given that we've seen recession in manufacturing, it's picked up in something like the LEI, but it hasn't manifested itself in this big decline in the economy because of the resilience in services, which is a larger, by the way, services is also a larger employer, helping to explain why the labor market has been so resilient. I'd love to talk a little bit more in a minute about the services and what might happen in 2024. I'm just curious your opinion on the implications of this rolling recession, because in my mind, parts of it seem to be positive, right? Rather than having this one deep recession, it, you know, different sectors of the economy are performing at different levels. But it also feels like it's sort of dragged out the economic pain and people are still sort of waiting for some definitive event to happen to declare a recession or to declare that the economy is better. And it feels like we're sort of in this economic purgatory right now. Do you think this is happening, having a psychological effect on businesses and American consumers? I do. In fact, I think that that's an important question because it brings up another unique facet to this uh, cycle. And that is that the psychological ways we measure growth in the economy, whether it's things like consumer confidence or consumer sentiment, they're they're very similar monthly readings are put out by two different organizations. Consumer confidence tends to be a little bit more biased to the, what's going on in the labor market, where consumer sentiment tends to be a little bit more biased to what's going on with inflation. So you can see divergences there. You can also look at other surveys like CEO confidence. Well, that's considered soft economic data, survey-based data. What are people saying? What's their mood? What's been interesting is the hard data does not corroborate the much weaker soft data. In other words, you've had this very dour backdrop of consumer confidence slash sentiment, but you haven't seen the equivalent in consumer spending. You've seen this very dour recessionary-like backdrop in CEO confidence, but as a as a proxy maybe for what would make them confident or not would be corporate earnings. And although corporate earnings were slightly negative in the last year or so, nowhere near to the degree that you would expect given 
the weakness in CEO confidence. So that's another unique aspect to this cycle is a pretty wide gap between the sort of attitudinal or soft economic data and the actual hard activity-based data. Uh, So that's good news in the sense that, yes, we're seeing it psychologically, but it's not manifesting itself in behavior that's commensurate with the weakness in in confidence. That makes a lot of sense. And I I just experience that almost every day. When you talk to someone about the economy, almost always you hear negativity or pessimism or fear. But when you look at these macro indicators, you see pretty strong reports coming out of multiple different sectors of the economy. So it's it does just feel like there's this sort of strange disconnect. And I that's why I really appreciate your analysis and terming of the rolling recession, because it does explain, at least in my mind, a lot of, of what's driving that psychological element. And by the way, I, I agree. It, it is arguably a better backdrop than a recession where the bottom falls out all at once, particularly in an extreme way, like was the case in in 2008. I mean, that was a protracted recession, but certainly that that acute 08 part was the bottom falls out all at once. And I think probably anybody would choose more of a roll through than than that. But you're right. It does leave a lot of people in this state of limbo and uncertainty for maybe a more extended period of time. You mentioned that the best case scenario in your mind heading forward is a continued roll through. So some, presumably some sectors recover, others go into an economic decline. And you mentioned services as being potentially one of the areas that might get hit. Why do you think services are sort of one of the big things to watch in 2024? So particularly in areas where the strength has been a bit more recent, with it, where the job growth has been more recent, reflecting the, the revenge spending on things like you know, travel and leisure and hospitality. Um, I think that the key ingredient to sort of keeping that afloat, uh, and, and we have started to see some cracks, ISM services index, which is a, a proxy for the broader services category, that that is that has weakened from recent peaks. You're you're seeing it in a smattering of of ways where we may be not at the exhaustion point, but at some point you've you've met that pent up uh, demand. But I think the real key is the labor market. I think if the labor market can remain resilient, I think that's been a thing that that consumers are are hanging on to to maintain that consumption, which again, in more recent periods, has been more sort of services oriented or experiences oriented as opposed to things, stuff, goods. Um, I, I think if we start to see more cracks in the labor market, given that metrics like the the savings rate, the the sort of diminution of the so-called excess savings, the fact that delinquencies for auto loans, for credit card loans are really picking up, particularly down the income spectrum into the subprime categories, the the increased use of, of credit cards for those that are turned off by the high fees or high interest rates, the increased use of buy now, pay later. Those are signs that there, there's at least some pocket of the consumer that is starting to get a little bit tapped out. But I think there's been this reliance on the health of the labor market as a buffer. And I think if if we were to start to see more than just the cracks we have seen, 
I think that that would have a feeder on the services consumption side that that might occur a bit more quickly. And so in your outlook for 2024, are you forecasting it breaking the labor market or at least an uptick in the unemployment rate? So we had gotten, obviously, an uptick in the unemployment rate from 3.4 at the low to 4%, and then that came back down to 3.7%. What's interesting about the unemployment rate is you don't historically see a lot of jump around volatility. It, it tends to be trending in one direction, and then there's the inflection, and then it tends to trend in the other direction. It's not like a metric, like initial unemployment claims, where you can see an incredible amount of uh, volatility. Uh, so it was a bit of a surprise. I think in general, the unemployment rate is probably going to be trending higher. That's just the the nature of being later in an economic cycle. But there is also truth to this notion of labor hoarding and the fact that for a lot of companies, the the skills gap, the labor shortages were so acute that I think they're more hesitant to use that, laying off people as a cost-cutting mechanism. So there, there is that sort of hanging on of, of labor. You've seen it picked up in other metrics, like hours worked having come down. You're also seeing cracks under the surface, for instance, with initial unemployment claims, which continue to be very low. That's a weekly reading. But there's an attendant report or, or metric that comes out every Thursday morning with initial claims, which is continuing claims measures not people who have just initially filed for unemployment insurance in the prior week, but people who continue to be on unemployment insurance. And the fact that that has accelerated to a much more significant degree than initial unemployment claims tells you that it's taking a bit longer for people to find jobs. So it really just is peeling uh, you know, a layer or two of the onion back to see where we're starting to see some uh, cracks. I don't anticipate some major move up in the unemployment rate. I I think that there is resilience in the labor market. There is truth to that notion of labor hoarding. But it's what happens when you're later in the cycle. And by the way, one mistake that a lot of, of economic watchers or market watchers, investors, whatever term you want to use, make is they think of the unemployment rate almost as a leading indicator. And it manifests itself in questions I get all the time. Why is anyone talking about a recession when the unemployment rate is so low? Wouldn't that, you know, I'm paraphrasing different forms of the question, wouldn't that have to go up a lot to bring on a recession? Well, it's actually the opposite that happens. Recessions happen for lots of reasons. And eventually the recession causes the unemployment rate to go up. It's not the other way around. So that's why it's important to look at things like unemployment claims and even more leading than that, you know, layoff announcements and job openings, because those are where you pick up in a leading way signs that eventually will work their way into a rising unemployment rate. That's an excellent analysis and detailed uh, opinion about the labor market and underscore something we talk about on the show that I want to remind everyone that there are lots of ways to look at the labor market. No one is perfect. And as Liz Ann 
clearly stated, you sort of have to look at the whole picture by understanding the unemployment rate, how many people are filing for claims, how many hours are worked, the labor participation rate. There's a lot to understand. So if you want to use this type of data and information in your own investing, you should, but make sure to get a holistic picture and not just cherry pick one sort of metric and use that as your barometer for the labor market. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Lizanne, you mentioned that we're late in this cycle, and your report discusses this at length and talks about how rate hikes have a, quote, long and variable lag associated with them. Can you explain this concept to our audience? The terminology of long and variable lags uh, dates back to the late, great Milton Friedman, who uh, wrote about that in one of his Books. And it's really just this idea that changes in monetary policy, in other words, the Fed raising interest rates or lowering interest rates, 
the impact that that has on the economy from a from a time perspective is very variable. Um, we know the lags are long, meaning the Fed raises rates. It doesn't have an immediate and in the moment impact on the economy. It takes a little while, but the time it takes and the the magnitude of that impact is very variable over time. And that's really what we just wanted to uh, point out. It, it's also justification, and the Fed has stated as such, for the Fed being what we believe to be in pause mode right now. We do think that the July 2023 rate hike was the final one in the cycle because they feel that they've done enough tightening. It was the most aggressive tightening cycle in more than 40 years. And this is the time now to assess the impact given those long and variable um, lags. And the other point we made in the report, looking at things like the decline in the leading indicators, which we touched on, the inversion of the yield curve, um, any number of, of measurements that in the past have been pretty good sort of recession indicators that were still within the range of, of time spans historically that have incorporated when you, you finally see the, the impact. So that was why one of our conclusions was we're not really past the expiration date, maybe not a recession per se, but we're not past the expiration date of having to continuing to worry about this. Uh, there, there's not some point where we can say every metric that has been you know, calling for a recession we're, we're we're way past the historical range of impact. Therefore, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Uh, let's celebrate. So we're we're still within the 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 variable range uh, associated with uh, with the past, uh, even including the unique characteristics of this uh, cycle. That's super important. And your report does a great job pointing out that all of these indicators that market watchers point to that there should be a recession or is likely to be a recession. Even historically, there is a long lag, like some of them take 24 months or 18 months, meaning that right. even though the Fed is in pause mode, the economy is very possibly still feeling the impact of rate hikes that happen, not just the most recent one, but ones that happened 12 months ago or perhaps even 18 months ago. I'm curious if the recent Fed news, and as a reminder, we are recording this towards the end of December. We just heard from the Fed that they are continuing to pause. And the most recent dot plot, which is a projection of where the Fed thinks that their federal funds rate will be in coming years, shows a potential for three rate cuts next year. Do you think that that Fed signaling that they might bring down rates might blunt sort of this lag effect. You know, like there's this always this lag effect. And part of me always thinks about how that's psychological, that if rates stay high, people are a little less willing to invest money. They're a little uh, more timid. And now perhaps the Fed is trying to blunt the impact of some of their more recent rate hikes and get people to start spending and feeling a bit more confident again? That may be indirectly uh, a part of it. I, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, we were, we were a little surprised at the, the uh, kind of telegraphing of, of a pivot. Um, you know, it's been generally deemed to have been a more dovish meeting, particularly once the press conference started and Jerome Powell was was taking questions. Now, that said, there is still a, a pretty 
wide gap between, to your point, what the dots plot, what is suggested by the expectations of Fed members for three rate cuts in 2024 versus now the market's expectation of six rate cuts in 2024. I think at this point, all else equal, given what we know now, and the rub is that the Fed is data dependent, so the data will define when they start to cut and how aggressively. But given what we know now, to me, it looks like the Fed is probably more right <laughs> than the market. Uh, that, but you know, in terms of of blunting the impact, yeah, I mean, the Fed looked at what in November was the the most amount of financial conditions easing in a single month in the history of of these multiple indexes that measure financial conditions. And that was one of the reasons why there was an assumption that that Powell at the meeting would be a bit more hawkish and say, look, you know, the loosening of financial conditions has done some of the job for us. We can stay in pause mode maybe longer. But he did kind of do that more dovish kind of pivot to an expectation of rate cuts. But there is still a fairly yawning gap between what the Fed is telegraphing and via its dots. It's not telegraphing anything. It's data dependent. So they're not on some predetermined uh, path. But I, I think six seems fairly aggressive, given that inflation is not anywhere near the Fed's target. Um, and they they claim that that's what they want to see. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, as we get into the beginning of 2024, if we don't see continued significant disinflation and or if the economy continues to behave quite well and we don't see any further cracks in the labor market or maybe even strengthening in the labor market, it wouldn't surprise me for the Fed to have to push back again against rate cuts starting as soon as, uh, you know, three months into the uh, next year. For what it's worth, I was also very surprised. You know, it's not like we saw these amazing inflation numbers. And as you said, right. financial conditions were already loosening. So it is a bit of surprise. And I just want to remind everyone who's mostly real estate investors here that although for those of us who are looking forward to lower mortgage rates, this may be encouraging, but certainly not guaranteed. You know, we've seen mortgage rates move down about 100 basis points in the last couple of weeks. But as Lizanne just pointed out, we don't know what the Fed is going to do. They are going to wait and see more economic data. And we also don't know how the bond market and mortgage-backed security markets are going to react to further economic data. Right. And that's a key point. Because it's the 10-year yield that's most directly correlated to mortgage rates, not the Fed funds rate, which is what the Fed has direct control over. So that's why it's the, the market forces associated with the bond market and longer term yields that will influence uh, mortgage rates. Well, that brings me to my my final sort of subject here that I want to talk about, which is the yield curve. Because bond yields are so pivotal in setting mortgage rates, as a real estate investor, I am very curious for your take on the yield curve. But for those who aren't familiar, can you just explain what the yield curve is? There's different yield spreads that are that are measured to then declare an inversion, which would in general just be when short-term interest rates are higher than long-term um, interest rates. It's probably the two most popular yield spreads that are analyzed when looking for an inversion, how deep the inversion is, would be the 10-year versus the three-month treasury or the 10-year versus the 
two year. And it it reflects an environment where early and even in advance of a tightening cycle, you've got still elevated short-term interest rates, but the bond market is starting to anticipate weaker economic growth and an eventual easing cycle by the Fed. So those longer term yields will come down. And once they go below the shorter term yields, that's when the yield curve inverts, which occurred now more than uh, a year ago. And it was a, a very deep inversion. What's interesting is recently when the yield curve started to steepen again, I, I heard a lot of comments saying, well, an inversion of the yield curve has been a pretty perfect historical precursor to a recession. And now that it's uninverting, which that was fairly short-lived, we don't have to worry about recession anymore. But what's interesting is that if you look at the long history of this, the inversion, if you want to use a weather analogy, um, inversions are the warning. And deepenings are actually the watch because recessions have actually typically started after a steepening and in many cases where you've the yield curve is actually uninverted and that's because the the long end starts to come down in anticipation of fed easing to come and so that's uh that's another i think misperception much like the relationship between the unemployment rate and recessions inversions and recessions. It's actually the the steepening that is the watch. It's the inversion that's the warning. But it also reflects problems in the financial system, given that most financial institutions, they borrow on the short end and they lend out at the long end and they make that spread. And that's what then provides juice to the economy. It gives them the ability to uh, to lend and keep the credit markets open and an inversion really stunts that. And so it works its way through the financial system and through lending standards. And, and that's ultimately how it impacts the economy. Given the importance of the steepening, what is happening with the yield curve of late? You mentioned that it inverted, I think, over a year ago. But has there been any recent movement of note? Well, yeah. So uh, the 10-year, as a perfect example, went from uh, 5%, where it, it hit for a fairly short period of time, all the way down to when I looked before coming on here, it was you know sub 3.9. So that's an extraordinary swing in the 10-year yield. And by the way, has had direct implications for the equity market, which was one of the themes in our report, that really the bond market has been in the driver's seat of the equity market. And the period from mid-July or so until the end of October, when the 10-year yield was surging on the upside, ultimately hitting that 5% peak, that was the period when the U.S. equity market had its correction. S&P down 10%, NASDAQ down 12 or 13%. And then since then, the peak in the 10-year yield at 5%, all the way back down to below 4%, has been very much what's behind the incredible move off the lows at the end of October for the equity market. So there has been a very, very direct relationship between what's going on in the bond market with an inverse relationship between yields and stock prices. Higher yields met lower stock prices and vice versa more recently. Thank you for explaining that. That's super helpful for, for all of us who are so interested and watch the bond markets pretty carefully. 
Lizanne, before we get out of here, I'd just love to hear from you what you would recommend to our audience if there's a couple of indicators that you think they should be watching heading into 2024 to understand the health of the U.S. economy. Well, one thing that's always important to to understand is which economic indicators, and we're barraged with them on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, but what bucket they fit fall into. Are they are they a leading indicator? Are they a coincident indicator? Are they a lagging indicator? And that applies to not just labor market data. You know, I mentioned initial unemployment claims, a key leading indicator, payrolls, a coincident indicator, the unemployment rate, not only a lagging indicator, one of the most lagging of, of indicators. So that's really important is understanding which fall in which uh, buckets, understanding that at times there can be a big difference between the soft and the hard economic data, which we touched on. So survey-based data versus actual hard activity-based data, kind of like, you know, you've got to look at what they're doing, not just what they're saying, whether it's consumers or uh, CEOs. But I think at this point, I, I happen to believe that the, what, will, what the Fed will key off of when it comes time to start to cut rates, actually pivoting to rate cuts, not just staying in pause mode, will be the combination of their dual mandate, inflation and the labor market. So on the tightening part of the cycle, they were almost solely focused on their inflation mandate. That was what was triggering the rate hikes in this very aggressive cycle. I don't think they they don't not care about inflation anymore, but I think the the labor market, the 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 employment half of their dual mandate, I think will will sit alongside the inflation data. And it's the combination of the two that will send the message to the Fed. OK, you know, it, you, you, you can feel somewhat confident that not only has inflation come down to or close to the target, but conditions in the labor market are not such that it's likely to reignite inflation again if we start to ease policy. So um, we always pay attention to labor market data, but the point is that I think the Fed is going to have a more keen eye on that than was the case during the tightening part of the cycle. All right. Well, thank you so much, Liz Ann. We'll, of course, link to your report in the show notes. Is there anywhere else people can find you if they want to follow your work? Sure. So all of our work is uh, is actually on the public site of Schwab.com. Um, that, that's one thing a lot of people don't realize. You don't have to be a client. You don't need a login. Um, there's a learn section on Schwab.com. That's where all of our written report is. That said, probably the most efficient way to get everything, not just written reports and videos and links to our new podcast, but um, the daily, you know, massive production of charts and reactions to economic data on either you know, Twitter, X formerly known as Twitter, or LinkedIn. So uh, that that's probably the easiest sort of one-stop shopping way to uh, to get everything. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to link to Liz Ann's Twitter or X profile, as well as her LinkedIn profile below if you want to check that out. Lizanne, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a happy new year. You too. Thank you. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. The show is produced by Kaylin Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible.
The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.